I'm delighted to introduce Professor Moses Akech. Moses joined the IOE in 2004 and was appointed Professor of International Education Policy and Development in 2015. He's co-director of the IOE Centre for Education and International Development, which is the largest community of scholars, students and alumni focused on education and international development in a single institution in the UK. The centre's remit is broad to further the contribution of education to social justice, equalities and empowerment, peace building and to health and well-being. Its work stretches across Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Middle East, and the Pacific. Moses' own research is in the economics of education and education policy analysis, mainly in relation to sub-Saharan Africa. Moses started his academic career in the United States. He received his PhD from the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, he went on to work at Vanderbilt University and then back to Illinois and in 2012 was visiting professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He has also supported research capacity building in Africa through his involvement with the African Population and Health Research Centre in Kenya. This evening's lecture draws from across his academic research which includes research on the educational choices of poor slum families through to studies of the effect of classroom resources on learning gains and through to the funding of higher education. So I, for one, am enormously looking forward to hearing more about this wide-ranging body of work and I'm delighted to invite Moses to present his lecture. Moses. for coming. I, I can see colleagues around. I also see faces of my students and my family is here too. So this is a, a great day. Uh, one of those days that you never plan for in your life. Uh, you never wake up and say one day I want to be a professor and give uh, this kind of lecture. But thank you Professor uh, Francis Becky, the director of the Institute for that brilliant succinct introduction of my academic journey uh, over the last nearly 20 years. Uh, today I'm here to be giving this inaugural lecture on the topic that covers a range of uh, uh, areas of my academic research uh, over the period. And uh, I've titled it uh, The Problem of Education and Development in Sub-Saharan Africa. I, I think that when I, when I came up with this topic, I, I felt that uh, the title covers uh, precisely what I've been dealing with uh, in my research for a long time. And the first question I've asked myself why the problem of education and development in Sub-Saharan Africa? And I start this uh, from uh, an interesting book that I read a while back. Uh, and the book is by uh, Alison Wolf. And it's called uh, Does Education Matter? Myths about Education and Economic Growth. And in that book, I want to quote Alison, who argues, an unquestioning faith in the economic benefits of education has brought with it huge amounts of wasteful government spending attached to misguided and even pernicious policies. Just because something is valuable, it does not follow that uh, yet more of it, by definition, is a good idea. That any addition, any increment, uh, must be welcome. Yet, in practice, this is what we seem to believe. That is what Alison was writing 
a few years ago when Tony Blair, the then Prime Minister of the UK, uh, said that his priority was education, education, education. But then, countering this view, Walter McMahon, with whom I've worked for many years and was my supervisor, partly, for my PhD at the University of Illinois, did write and he said, true economic development does not occur unless this pure economic growth is accompanied by other uh, dimensions important to quality of life, such as good health, reductions in poverty and inequality, improvements in participatory democracy, political stability, a sustainable environmental forest, wildlife, air, water, less violent crime, and basic human rights. Yet, these are also some of the aspects of human welfare to which education simultaneously contributes. Now imagine, in the audience of these two experts was an African Minister of Education, responsible for developing education in his country, and listening to these two views. What do you think would be the appropriate policy direction for this minister in his or her country with regard to education spending? And that is the question I've been asking myself for very many years, that when I listen and when I do the research, if I was a minister, what would I do given these contrasting positions expressed by these two experts? No doubt, both examples uh, illustrate the complexity of the theory of human capital, the idea that education is an investment uh, with returns to individual and to society, and that both individuals and society are in turn responsible for funding some aspects of this education. By education, of course, I mean formal schooling. A lot of education happens every day, every minute. Uh, so, of course, there is plenty of schooling, that education that happens outside the school, and we have to recognize that. But I want to start with one point about the idea that is there a myth about education? Is there too much education? And uh, why is there such unquestioned faith in education? And uh, it's not surprising. Not so long ago, I could not turn on the television news without hearing about young African immigrants rescued in the Mediterranean Sea, or already in Italy, uh, trying to reach other parts of Europe, such as the UK. What struck me was that whenever they were asked uh, why they were so keen to come to UK, for example, the common answer uh, was ambition to access education. Very interesting. Education was the main thing, that they were risking their lives to come here. That is what they say. But then I traveled to Africa. Just last week I was in Ethiopia, quite a bit. I traveled often in Africa for my research. Uh, and when I traveled there, I come across young people with education who lack employment. So the question I'm asking, what is it that drives people to believe so much in education? and yet also suffer the anguish of having acquired it because uh, they, their dream of that perfect job is shattered. And this is something that has concerned me for a long time. And my research has been about this compelling narrative of human capital theory, which has become a doctrine and opinion, a public policy worldwide, and which states that investment in education is instrumental for economic growth. And I've explored what we can learn from its application in sub-Saharan Africa. It, in this, I have drawn on evidence uh, from across different aspects of education policy in the region, including analysis of the provision of universal basic education, uh, the focus on technical vocational education and training, and the financing of higher education. I recognize the impediments uh, to economic growth uh, from wider factors in the region, not least rampant corruption that is happening in governments, as well as conflicts but uh, uh, also poor implementation of otherwise necessary focus on skill building. I have concluded through my research over many years that however commanding human capital theory is, it remains tacit if the actual implementation of policies is not effective. And that is going to form a bigger uh, contribution of my research today. 
as I start to discuss uh, some of the issues uh, that uh, I've been researching. To most people, especially educators, the concept of human capital would sound unpalatable, even of putting. How can anything to do with humans be a capital? Some may demur when confronted with this approach. As Nobel laureate in economics Gary Baker noted, to most people, capital is that which yields income and other useful outputs over a long period of time. How can education be connected to capital, one might ask. But as I've said, it is this capital in the form of schooling that has drawn my research attention for about 20 years since I entered academia. I'm well aware, as others before me have noted, that among academics, the concept of human capital is problematic uh, and remains suspect. It is easy to appreciate such concerns when education is so beset by the challenges of unequal access and unequal rewards. Whether or not education is considered an investment, it empowers the elites to access it easily, uh, whereas the rest of society access whatever is offered to them, and in some cases, nothing is offered at all. To paraphrase Baker, if capital exploits labor, does the notion of human capital exploit children and young people? Are educated people pitted against less educated as a result of human capital framework? Are skilled workers pitted against unskilled workers as a result of a human capital framework? How should governments, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, engage with and respond to the concept of human capital? These questions inevitably mean the idea of human capital developed to understand the economic and social world is often thrust into ideological discussions, sometimes something that Baker also noted in 1993. But it is precisely these problems that have led me to focus on what is known about human capital theory and its application, especially with regard to how it relates or not to the development of education in sub-Saharan Africa, and in turn, economic uh, development or lack of in this particular part of the world. Despite being suspect in academic circles, the concept of human capital remains popular in sub-Saharan Africa, with governments and among the population, both rich and poor alike. A few years ago, as Professor, Francis, uh, Professor Becky mentioned, I had uh, the chance to be in Africa through an arrangement I had with the university, and I spent this time in Kenya conducting and leading research at a non-governmental research think tank that was focused on understanding the challenges and how to improve lives in urban slums based on research evidence. In this context, I focused on why poor families were utilizing what is referred to as local private schools in spite of the country's free primary policy. Uh, this was to me a conundrum uh, of education and the concept of human capital associated with it. Sometimes these private schools in the slums were referred to as non-formal schools. Like the slums where they were found, they were unrecognized and unregulated by government. I was not surprised to find that many of these less educated and also uneducated parents understood the concept of human capital. It was the popular uh, reason why they were sending their children to all kinds of schools so that they could become doctors, lawyers, pilots, and all the like because there was, no in, there, was no, there was insufficient government provision. Parents were making the economic sacrifices necessary to pay school fees. However informally uh, these were paid, not because education was a right to them or because they saw education as an end in itself, rather it was uh, the instrumental value of education as a means to an economic end that was motivating them to step in and provide this schooling where the government of Kenya had failed. Yet, looked at from a different perspective, possibly unknown to these parents, 
this is a questionable philosophy around which to organize education equitably. Ironically, a few of these parents mentioned becoming a teacher as the reason why they were sending their children to these schools, a point I will come back to later on. In the 1960s, when much of sub-Saharan Africa gained independence, there was no trouble with the concept of investing in people through schooling. Ignorance, poverty, and diseases were to be cured by providing schooling. It is easy to see how the idea of human capital may have supported rapid integration of schooling uh, to remove racially segregated schools in places such as Kenya, how it helped to support uh, rapid government expenditure in education, and how education was a rallying point and philosophy for nation building and for the aspirations of economic transformation of the region. In fact, one could argue that education offered at this point uh, a supporting role for social justice, pitting the conscientious independence heroes against the injustices of the colonial era which they dedicated themselves to correcting. Investment in education at this time was largely, however, for reasons other than developing human capital in the economic sense. But this was also a time when Africans needed to take over the running of the state, and education was crucial in developing this kind of workers. In many places, by 1970s, most state positions had been filled, and cracks in the idea of education as a human capital investment began to emerge. Additionally, the education system inherited intact from the colonial system soon became the means of exclusion rather than inclusion, as had been anticipated following independence. It, it also became a weak tool for inculcating African values and cementing nationalism, exposing the weaknesses that are inherent in the understanding of education as a human capital investment, where the curriculum and content remain Western in focus. Schooling was associated with producing successful white-collar workers. Soon there was discontent among the educated because successful schooling did not equate white-collar work, and those with qualifications competed for limited prestigious government positions. All the generations who already were holding these positions defended them and sought to consolidate their standing in society and for their children. So the question I've asked as I do this kind of research, did human capital lead to pitting educated against educated? Did the concept of human capital and the reward structure help to undermine nation building and instead fueled the beginning of the so-called the disease of African tribalism today? It's difficult. Uh, and complex to answer these questions. So I'll avoid them today. If you're looking forward to an answer to these questions I've raised, I will not answer those questions. Instead, I will focus on how the faith in the concept of human capital has lingered on in a context that has undermined sometimes its ability to drive economic development. A situation which one could argue, in part, is due to the limitations of the notion itself. But I also want to say that Sub-Saharan Africa is complex in terms of economic uh, structure. So it's good for me to uh, just give you a brief highlight about uh, what the economic nature of Sub-Saharan Africa is. In economic terms, Sub-Saharan Africa is tiny. Its largest economy is that of Nigeria, which accounts for only 0.65% of the global economic wealth, estimated by the World Bank 2017 to be roughly $72 trillion US dollars. Another World Index offers different and more depressing picture. The World Economic Forum Global Human Capital Report for 2017 places Nigeria 114 and Ethiopia, another fast-growing African economy, 127 out of 200 countries. On this scale, they sit behind the region's best performers of Rwanda at position 71, Ghana 72, Cameroon 73, and Mauritius 74. 
These countries, the good performers, are reported to have developed 60% of their human capital. The report notes that the top two ranked countries in the region, Rwanda and Ghana, owe their comparatively strong performance to respectively almost completely closed educational employment gender gaps and significantly improved educational attainment of the country's younger generations. In conclusion, the report suggests these good performers, which also includes Kenya at 78, have benefited from stock of know-how embodied, embodied in large medium-skilled employment sector and comparatively strong education quality and staff training, laying the foundation for building a future human capital potential. The success of Nigeria, the economic giant of sub-Saharan Africa, as it is known, is, is attributed to its relatively large uh, pool of tertiary educated workers, especially among its older generations, and comparatively strong staff training. However, Nigeria simultaneously records low primary and secondary education attainment across all age groups and one of the lowest current primary school enrollment rates globally. Similarly, the lowest ranked high population country in the region, Ethiopia, with almost 100 million in people in terms of its population, is ranked 127 and ranks forth from the bottom on this human uh, capital index, uh, ahead only of Senegal, Mauritania, and Yemen, with low performance on the capacity and deployment surveillances, which is attributed to high unemployment and underemployment across all generations. Yet, Nigeria and Ethiopia are today the fastest growing economies in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, which is surprising. Thus, just reading these statistics, one could be forgiven for not believing in the power of education and the doctrine of human capital to spur economic growth, precisely the, the point that Alison Wolf was raising in her book, Does Education Matter? Myths About Education and Economic Growth. However, combining these sources of data, the Global Wealth Index and the data on the Human Capital Index, might offer new insights uh, into the link between education and economic development. When they are combined and looked at much more carefully, they begin to provide uh, empirical narrative uh, to these statistics, which appears uh, to suggest a vital link between investment in human capital and economic development, if microdata, but also uh, in terms of cross-country economic growth, when the indirect effects of education are considered or taken into account. I have to say that in the 1980s and 90s, most uh, countries in sub-Saharan Africa could not deal effectively with their poor economic performance and required international intervention by the World Bank and the IMF. Some even registered relatively high rates of economic decline. Today, many countries in sub-Saharan Africa have reversed these performance, even though some, such as Somalia and Sudan, are considered as failed states. And if, you, if I just show you, um, I'll come back to this later on, but um, if I just show you, this is a graph that shows how the economy is Sub-Saharan Africa are doing today, and I want to thank some of my colleagues who have provided input uh, to my lecture today. Uh, it shows that actually, uh, overall, uh, the figure shows that while improvements, uh, th that uh, the countries that are performing better today than they did before, in fact, uh, according to that figure, uh, there's been a tremendous improvement, although it has been slow, over the last decade. Uh, but this growth, uh, I should say, uh, has been exceeding the world average. At current growth rates, as shown in that figure, some countries will manage to double their GDP per capita in the next generation, assuming around 25 years. If we want to apply human capital theory to this context, an immediate question is the extent to which this past investment, this, 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 the extent to which past investment in education can take credit for this uh, turnaround in economic performance. 
uh, from the negative performance in the 1980s. But besides that, I think uh, the question I, I raise is, is human capital theory convincing, even if it is suspect? As I did say, uh, within academic circles, it can be su suspect. Uh, I start by saying there is a vast amount of literature on educational economic growth based on macroeconomic uh, frameworks, but it is not consistent, which is true. Some of the reasons for this lack of consistency is to do with measurement error, less agreement on definition of development, and inconsistent statistical methods. The problem has less to do with agreement among economists and economic variables, but instead with both inadequate measures of education variables and less agreement about what roles these variables should play in defining education. This means that uh, the variables applied are a proxy measures of education. For example, years of schooling as a measure of adult skills and literacy and numeracy rates are a, me are a measure of uh, education quality. In the worst cases, qualifications are used as a measure of adult skills. Whatever the measure, as my colleagues such as Andy Green have said before, it is, it is adult skills in the labor market or in the labor force that is considered to be the most relevant uh, way to measure the link between the impact of education and economic development. Yet we do not have well-developed data uh, to directly test adult skills level across a wide range of countries. Instead, as indicated uh, by others uh, before me, economists have relied on years of schooling as a proxy for skills and to model the con contribution of education to economic development based on that. But this is only a proxy and has been criticized severely, especially by educators. To respond, economists such as Hanushe have shifted their attention from years of schooling to quality of schooling. And we have also seen that kind of shift uh, in the way that PISA data has been utilized, again as a proxy for adult skills. This approach is also currently receiving widespread criticism, um, uh, especially among educators. This is for two reasons. One, there is no agreed measure of quality. So these measures are based on arguably false assumption that quality of education at different levels in different countries is comparable. And secondly, the fact that relationships between education and growth are complicated by a number of intervening variables which interact in different ways in different times and different places. A point that is highlighted in the work that Walter McMahon talks about in terms of the social benefits of education. Furthermore, Hanushek's analysis has been criticized on the grounds that his correlation was made using population segment approach rather than longitudinal study. Due to the, due to the nature of segmentation, Hanushek was analyzing the incomes and test scores of completely different people, and possibly due to the changes in education focus um, over the last 20 years, populations with arguably different uh, education backgrounds. Furthermore, Anushek asserts that test scores can be a measurement for the quality of education received, which is a premise many academics and educators alike would find doubtful. For these reasons, the quest continues to understand how education and economic development are interconnected. So I still have my job many years down the line because we haven't found an answer. And this interest continues to underpin the tensions between education as investment under the human capital framework and education as a right promoted by the United Nations soft legal framework previously under the UN Millennium Development Goals and currently under its Sustainable Development Goals. I would argue that the right to education is drawn from the fact that education is implicated in economic development via its contribution to other skills. But since we don't have a good measure of what the skills are, this area of education and development is wide open for debate and research.
But the balance of the evidence and the arguments among economists contends that education in the form of schooling is an investment that is vital and vitally important to economic law, although under certain circumstances or assumptions. Because these conditions are not homogeneous across countries, neither are the effects of education when looked across different countries. Consequently, much of the ensuing debate has been about social justice. This does not preclude, in my view, the notion that education is a human capital investment, but it does widen the scope and highlights the ways in which education contributes to economic development, mainly through intervening factors. These factors may not be economic themselves, but underpin the conditions for education and economic development described in economics literature. It is here, I would argue, then, that social justice and human capital uh, begin to find their connection. And I don't see why they should be separate, because there is uh, human capital in the promotion of social justice, and likewise, there is social justice in the promotion of human capital. And I think that we haven't explored this area enough to understand that interlinkage uh, between the two. The other challenge in this debate on education and economic development is how to separate the contributions of each level of education, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. In the past, we have applied what we call rate of return analysis, which formed the basis for greater investment in basic education by the World Bank, uh, which has now also been uh, severely criticized, because whether one claims that basic education has greater contribution to men, to society, and to individuals than later phases of education, such as universities, is dependent on various factors, such as the quality of teachers who are trained in post-primary level and tertiary education, whilst the quality of tertiary education is dependent on the quality of basic education that its students have received. This interdependence complicates the rate of return discourse and makes it an viable way uh, for uh, driving policy in education. Yet, I have to say, apart from a few instances where CVs were not required for a job, given what I've said to you about human capital, uh, applying for a job, or most employers in many countries, still believe that candidates' education credentials indicate their capacity to do a job. And herein lies the belief among parents and governments in sub-Saharan Africa, too, over many years since their political independence, that education is a panacea for addressing the economic challenges the region faces. The discussion around youth bulge in sub-Saharan Africa, and what is now called youth dividend in sub-Saharan Africa, are a friend in relation to economic productivity of the youth and how to harness it via investment in education. But if these uh, proxy measures are problematic, that is, the, me the measure through attainment and the measure through quality, are a very good indicator that the relationship between education and development is not straightforward. What complication does this present in sub-Saharan Africa's education investment policies for basic education for technical vocational education and training, and for higher education finance, and what is the way, the way forward. As I said, economic trends in sub-Saharan Africa are quite variable, and this has implications for analyzing the role of education in economic growth in the region. A positive economic outlook is necessary uh, to absorb skills into the labor market. Skills are in turn necessary condition for a positive economic growth outlook, especially in systems that have put in place strategies for addressing inequalities resulting from education systems. It can be argued that there is a feedback effect between the economy and skills development. Yet, the economic picture in sub-Saharan Africa has not been systematically analyzed through the lens of, uh, through the lens of challenges of providing learning for the masses, which is also associated with limited transition into post-primary education. 
And I'll show you here, this graph, this graph here shows you the economic variability in the region. And what you can see from that graph are extremes in the economic growth patterns in Sub-Saharan Africa. The Central African Republic shows a very low GDP per capita of less than 1,000. In contrast, Gabon has the highest GDP per capita of about 20,000. However, in terms of the challenges of learning for masses, these two extremes are likely to face similar challenges. This is in part because these growth figures are driven by commodity goods, such as oil in the case of Gabon. It is often these economic in indicators, like GDP per capita, that draw much attention, far more so than analysis of the challenges to learning. Yet if these two were combined, such that interest in these economic indicators were matched with interest in learning, and specifically the challenges of learning for the masses, a much better evidence base for policy might be generated, which would serve to articulate better ways of addressing the role of education in economic development. So unless there is attention to learning for the mass population, positive change will be very difficult. The World Economic Forum report on Human Capital Index has now realized this and has begun drawing attention uh, to this in terms of uh, the index it has developed. The other issue that is of interest in relation to this debate besides economic, uh, economic uh, uh, variability in the region is the concept of the youth bulge. And I need to mention something about this youth, youth bulge. In Sub-Saharan Africa, there is a youth bulge. Some have called this a youth dividend, a hopeful perspective. But a large investment in schooling is required in combination with sufficient labor market demand to liberate this demographic dividend. <coughs> Otherwise, it will not happen. Uh, in some countries, uh, uh, though, numbers have started to decline. And uh, I want to show you this figure again, uh, which is interesting because uh, it shows you there that Sub-Saharan Africa has the opportunity now to change things. But perhaps it's already too late because 40% of the population are within the youth age of 15 to 24 years and most of them will have been bypassed by schooling. Uh, but this is what is called youth dividend. If you translate this population group into productivity, or people who are productive through uh, employment opportunities and labor market demand, then things are supposed to be positive. And that is what we are saying, as I'm saying here, that this is, there is a sign that peaks may have been reached and demographic, demographic dividend might happen. But these are general trends that do not address the challenges of learning for the mass population due in particular to persistent problems of school dropout during and after primary schooling. So this kind of analysis is interesting, and you looking at this demographic and population figures are important. But furthermore, concerns about low-quality schooling is also something that uh, uh, requires attention, because it is associated with uh, poor teaching methods and overcrowded classrooms due in part to past high fertility rates, which place major strain on education systems and its contribution to economic development in the region. Nevertheless, in spite of all these uh, challenges, uh, I have to say that uh, uh, populations in Africa have higher rates of education today than ever before. Uh, I will show you shortly uh, this figure here that shows you the projected participation in secondary school. And uh, what it does show there is that uh, um, people who are 15 years and above with at least secondary education attainment will go up. Apart from a drop in Liberia, Secondary education has expanded from a small one percentage point in Madagascar to over 20% in Kenya and surprisingly in Zimbabwe. However, this positive trend excludes many children who are out of school. In addition, it only tells about enrollment and not learning outcomes. Learning assessment of the masses 
enrolled in schools is becoming an ever more necessary indicator as highlighted by SDG Goal 4, Quality Education. While there has been generally positive economic trend in Sub-Saharan Africa in the past decade, there has not been analysis of how this has impacted the masses, especially the youth and those at the bottom of the pyramid, and how this might be related to the challenges of learning across school systems and the contribution of education to economic growth. Only when governments begin to understand and address the challenges of learning for all children, as well as in the domain of youth and adulthood, will these indicators be more useful in realizing the demographic uh, dividend. Uh, for far too long, learning has been left out of discussions concerning technical vocational education and training, a topic to which I will now turn. According to World Bank 2014 uh, report, it says that 11 million youth are expected to enter the labor market each year in Sub-Saharan Africa, and this will continue over the next decade. The majority of those who will fail to secure employment will be those at the bottom of the pyramid in terms of their learning and education. They will also lack requisite skills to improve the quality of available work in the informal sector, where many of them uh, currently work. In this context, technical vocational education and training is often proposed as a potential magic solution of this, and, of, 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 and, of, and being of strategic importance in addressing the special challenges faced by marginalized youth in Africa. Yet, research on technical vocational education and training and youth employability in sub-Saharan Africa remains contested and uncertain, often lacking strong empirical base and analytical robustness. Therefore, the, role, the, relative, therefore, the relative role, the relative effectiveness of TVET uh, participation in improving learning and the labor market outcomes for young people remains uncertain. Analysis that look at TVET participation, the degree to which it affects post-primary learning transition, the heterogeneity of potential effect by individual characteristics and the stability of the potential effect over working life would highlight the extent to which those with the least education are impacted. This can be done by leveraging cross-national micro-level data to eliminate, eliminate uh, the effectiveness of TVET in different education systems under varying labor market circumstances. This would surely advance our understanding of how the youth, uh, adults, learning transition and labor market interaction can be assessed under different contexts to begin to understand and address the challenges of learning for the masses. In addition, qualitative system level of data on TVET policies and practices can be applied to better associate learning with youth employment outcomes across countries. It is only after such analysis has been done that the role of TVET may be clearly assessed. At the moment, many countries have placed their hopes on TVET, technical vocational education and training that is, without a framework for how it can address the challenges of learning or unemployment among the youth. The focus should be on understanding how TVET systems address low levels of literacy and numeracy, limited functional language development, low attainment qualifications, weak social capabilities, and so on, all necessary employability skills for youth of all economic backgrounds. To begin to answer these questions requires the understanding of some specific TVET experiences, especially for marginalized youth and others with little formal schooling, apprenticeships may offer an avenue to improve labor market outcomes. In contrast, some would argue that the development of functioning workplace training systems require the contribution of social, social partners, employers, and trade unions. Yet, this is often a difficult task, at the flex, uh, uh, task as the flexible informal forces of traditional apprenticeship can easily be distorted 
and overburdened by the dependency on supply-driven training. And so that itself leaves a, a very depressing picture. Um, and the picture is depressing for a number of reasons. If you look at uh, uh, most of the countries, employment is still largely within agriculture. And yet, when you look at education systems, there is very little focus on improving this agriculture. And by 2050, a large proportion of the population will be in urban areas. But you can see that a larger proportion of the labor force is in agriculture. And thanks to some of my colleagues who are supporting with this data, it does really give us a necessary picture to connect with education policy and to say, you can't simply analyze education on its own. You need to analyze education in relation to the political economy and the economic context of the region. The other thing is just to look at the vulnerability of uh, uh, the population and the youth. Uh, because when you talk about Tibet, you're talking about youth. And this picture here shows you the vulnerability. Uh, the yellow part are those who are engaged in employment. Uh, these are just a few countries that have been picked. And what it shows you is that um, if you look at Zambia, for example, uh, it's very tiny proportion. When you look at Uganda, uh, the female is even worse. If you look at uh, Togo, uh, the ones in yellow are the ones who are engaged in employment among the youth. And it shows you that actually a very tiny proportion. A large proportion of the youth are in vulnerable position. And unless something is drastically done uh, to address uh, this uh, uh, kind of uh, graph, uh, then the contribution of education to development is going to be highly minimized. And this comparison is necessary so that we can see where the problem is. And for the youth, you can see one of the things that we need to do is to enlarge that yellow graph so that those within that yellow category can be the larger share of the population. So if you move away from Tibet, I've already painted a picture to say that Tibet is actually not offering the solution to the problem of education and development. It is part of the problem. What about basic education, where everything begins? The beginning of education at the base is basic education. How does the picture of basic education look like? Uh, this one is aspiration for the youth, so I'm not bothered with it, but it does show you that a lot of the young people have got aspiration for employment, which is a good year because it really drives them towards education. And governments can actually apply this in order to uh, um, deal with uh, supply aspect because it seems like the demand aspect of it, people who are willing uh, to uh, be involved in gainful employment, especially among the youth, is high. But at basic education, there is a very interesting picture there which I want to show you. And that picture there. Uh, tells you something about participation rates in basic education. Basic education basically means primary education. And what that figure shows is that for between 1999 and 2009, Sub-Saharan Africa made tremendous gains in primary school enrollment compared with other regions. This was the period of intensified efforts associated with the 2015 Millennium Development Goals, MDGs. Were this to be sustained, this will be a welcome trend towards universal access in just a few years hence. But whether it is sustainable is open to question. Serious challenges remain in several countries relating to teacher training, quality, classroom size, curriculum, and school management, all of which have impacted on the effectiveness of education systems to lead to economic growth under the human capital framework. Until recently, little attention has been paid to quality of schooling and how to measure it. The focus in the MDGs was on access. Now the SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, have focused on quality, but it is not known whether this focus will simultaneously continue to improve access 
for the many who still do not have the chance to attend school, as in the case of Nigeria and Ethiopia, although these two are noted to be the fastest growing economies in Africa, partly thanks, thanks to China's investment there. Furthermore, many teachers in sub-Saharan Africa would prefer to leave the profession. The reasons cited for this include relatively low salaries and lack of career advancement. Ironically, it would seem that while mandating participatory and learner-centered methodology in classrooms, policymakers in sub-Saharan Africa have chosen to ignore the voices of the teachers in the system while designing it. Uh, for basic education, empirical research, as we know it, uh, has demonstrated that school factors affecting student learning uh, uh, focus on teachers. Students with more effective teachers perform better on achievement tests. In sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the teaching profession has attracted negative public image in many countries, which is only perpetuated by current high rates of absenteeism and low rates of job satisfaction among teachers. Ultimately, this has led to serious challenges in providing quality education to a large majority, limiting the complete realization of the concept of human capital. The current teacher crisis in sub-Saharan Africa has its roots in the inequality of education systems across the region and less than adequate government efforts to redress it. Teaching was one of the founding professions in sub-Saharan Africa, and the training and qualifications for these teachers were vastly superior in those days when compared to who is selected and trained to be a teacher today. As a result, the population served by these newly trained teachers, where the profession has much been eroded, sometimes lack respect for the profession. Many teachers are ill-suited to deliver education reforms. Additionally, the shift to focus on measuring learning outcomes is radically changing expectations of classroom teachers without the substantial amount of in-school support that would be necessary to realize the, this shift uh, to full effect. Due to the additional stress of the new curriculum reforms and the fear of being redeployed to less desirable conditions, many talented young people and their middle-class families are no longer attracted to the teaching profession, and the good ones already in the profession choose to live at the first opportunity. In many cases, teacher education is generally regarded as weak and not cost-effective, despite numerous efforts at reforms compounded by the fact that the teaching profession does not attract individuals at the top end of their skills distribution in the labor market, which compounds the problem. In such circumstances, it cannot be said that the goals of human capital have been met, and it is not a surprise, therefore, that there is a mismatch between the expanded education and economic output. The majority have completed schooling of low quality to enable them to have an economic impact of the nature articulated by human capital theory. Many will have no chance of secondary schooling due to limited availability. And with poor lower level education, the potential impact of secondary education economic productivity is anyway less apparent. This is the point that the Human Capital uh, Index report is trying to address by coming up uh, with this index. I want to mention something about universal primary education. It's very important, the idea of universalizing primary education through what we call a free primary education policy, which, according to my research, has bypassed many children, especially those in the slums. As I said earlier, urbanization is thought to be the engine of economic transformation. And given the current rates of urbanization, by 2050, it is projected that sub-Saharan Africa will have more than 60% of its population living in urban areas. The majority of this population will be living in the slums. Excess demand, um, excess demand is already driving desperate families 
poor families to send their children to schools that have been referred to as private schools for the poor. Uh, some have uh, argued, for example, that uh, these schools are offering differentiated demand, and that these schools offer alternative to parents and are a possible better avenue for mass education. I would disagree, and my research has demonstrated that. Uh, I want to show you here something also very interesting from part of my research. This is based on research in Nairobi, following 13,000 households um, with, with potentially about 5,000 or more, more children. Uh, but this, 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 this graph here demonstrates two, two population groups. One is the population living in the slums, to the left, and to the right is the population living in the non-slums. Both populations are experiencing a government policy of universal education. And what you can see there is that uh, the poorest of the poor in the slums on the left side uh, were utilizing private schools where they paid fees. These are very poor people. Before the Kenyan government introduced a policy of universal primary education in 2003. When the government introduced the policy in 2003, they actually responded very positively. You can see there in 2003 the dark part of that graph goes up tremendously to say that actually they were suffering because they were paying for education and the government policy of universal education was a welcome move. But then over a period of time they didn't like the education. Something is happening. They began to move backward. But then you look at the right side. That is the less poor population. Not very rich but less poor uh, educated parents. And when the policy was introduced it did not really affect the education very much. Uh, some of them are using private school which is the red part due to differentiated demand, but they're enjoying public provision of education. Uh, this graph, to me, demonstrates what I call ineffective implementation of universal basic education, which again undermines the concept of human capital theory as applied in this context. And you can replicate this graph nearly in every country in Sub-Saharan Africa. And it's terrible, because when you universalize education, you should think of people at the bottom of the pyramid, that these people on my left side. They are the ones who should benefit the most. And if you can uplift them so that most of them can enjoy good quality education, then the feedback effect in the next generation in terms of economic productivity and contribution to society will be greater. But this is implementation problem that is uh, repeated in several countries in Africa. So the above, uh, these two figures demonstrate the inadequate supply of public schooling opportunity in the slums, which is associated with low public expenditure having been directed towards education of the poor in urban areas. This is an illustration of poor implementation of free primary education policy in Kenya, which is replicated in several <coughs> countries across Sub-Saharan Africa, and which is a problem uh, of education and development in the region. It cannot be the case that the poorest segments of the population should prefer to send their children to private schools, as shown there, when the less poor who are in the non-slums enter into the public subsidized government system. Something is wrong with that, and that has to be corrected. The other thing I want to show you here is, uh, is, is, uh, is about uh, uh, the disparities in land, which is also amazing when you're comparing the rich and the poor uh, uh, segments of the population. This is based on World Inequalities Database on Education by UNESCO. And it shows you disparity in achievement in reading attainment at primary level between the rich and the poor in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, the first country that does worse there is, is Zambia. Uh, almost uh, the average is below 50%. So which means that country reading levels are terribly, very poor. Even if you take the rich and the poor, they're really underperforming. There is no way 
that a country like Zambia can be claiming to build its human capital is a, it's not a very functional education system if you go by these statistics. Uh, when you look at uh, Malawi, you see the same. South Africa has huge amount of inequality. Uh, you find that uh, um, the poorest are far, far behind the richest, and it has the greatest inequality uh, when you compare that. If you look at the richest to 100%, and the poorest in South Africa there uh, is one of the, the largest inequalities. And countries that have uh, less inequality include Tanzania, Kenya surprising too. Tanzania possibly because of Swahili policy, because everybody starts at a very similar language. But the problem in Tanzania is when they move to secondary school, they shift to English, and that creates terrible inequality and distorted education system. But it does tell you that if you can start very well at the basic education level, you can actually minimize these inequalities, as shown by the case of Tanzania, without a lot of resources. But Tanzania, as I've said, when it moves to secondary school, it shifts to English, and that distorts the productivity and the entire education system there. What I say is that this uh, illustrates the complexity of education and development uh, in South-Southern Africa. Under these circumstances, it cannot be argued that human capital concept conditions have been met in South-Southern Africa. And the failure of education to lead to economic development can be associated with poor implementation of universal education since the 1960s. This is not only a recent phenomenon. This generates negative feedback effect whereby a small minority benefit uh, uh, from selective and exclusive education, and large majority contend with poor quality or lack of any schooling offer at all, as in the case of the millions of children out of school uh, in, uh, in Ethiopia uh, and in Nigeria and many other parts of sub-Saharan Africa, including uh, the complicated uh, nations such as South Sudan. By contrast, in Korea and other Asian tigers, implementation of universal education since the 1960s generated positive feedback effect whereby the larger majority gained access to comparatively good education, which then had the effect of equalizing opportunity in the next round for the next generation. So that bit covers my analysis of uh, basic education in my research. I've summarized it in there. There's a lot in my research. I've written almost 100 papers uh, and several things. But I've just summarized some of the issues that I see within basic education. As Professor Becky mentioned, uh, one area of my research is also in higher education. So. Um, I cannot uh, miss not to mention something about uh, financing of higher education. Uh, enrollment in higher education in Sub-Saharan Africa has expanded faster uh, than most parts of the world. In fact, uh, uh, in the 1970s, there were only 200,000 uh, uh, students enrolled. Uh, by 2008, it had reached 4.8 million. That is huge increment in a very short period of time. Today, it's much higher than that close to 7 million, maybe 5 million, 6, 7 million. Uh, more, about 5 million, I think, so more than that. This is more than a 24 increase, increment between 1970 and uh, uh, 2008. Where do all these young people go? Uh, people like Pritchett have asked, where has all the education gone? When you produce these 4.5 million people, what do they do? How do they contribute to economic productivity of the continent has been a question that is raised by people who are skeptical about rapid expansion of education. Uh, but it does provide interesting uh, uh, contrast and interesting discussion. Uh, today, provision is uh, diversified as a result of introduction of fees. You'll be surprised that there is fees in sub-Saharan Africa countries. Categories of universities now include older traditional universities started by the colonial powers. Uh, and then we've got newer state universities and a proliferation of private universities. To some academics, the introduction of fees and a move away from the dominance of uh, free university to the involvement of the market uh, 
is good and is welcome because it has expanded access. For others, it has commodified education and undermined quality, limiting the role of higher education in effectively contributing human capital for economic growth. Fees are come in the form of meeting the full economic cost or through cost sharing uh, between students and their families. The concern is that governments now expect universities to find their own sources for effective funding, which has meant that universities rely heavily on student fees at the expense of good student learning experience. Research has been undermined by this because academics have to hop from one university to another to teach and because they have got heavy teaching loads uh, generated by large classes. In this context, the idea, the idea of endogenous growth, which is about innovation, higher education creating innovation, has been undermined and challenged and will be very difficult to realize. But there are also possibilities of loans. Loans are common all over the world. There are those who have argued that loans and the student debt they generate are regrettable. Whether loans are a feasible way of expanding access and maintaining quality in sub-Saharan Africa, given the inequalities in basic education and limited opportunity for secondary education, is arguable. Therefore, there are serious doubts as to whether human capital goals will be met through the loan model for higher education in this region. This is because student loans, where they exist, were rushed in without considering their complexities. Governments simply do not have enough resources to lend to all students. Banks are reluctant to accept potential future earnings as a guarantee for loans, as well as being reluctant to enter into agreement with unstable governments that can change quickly and in, cont in a context where accountability is often uh, less than very adequate. If loans were to support human capital development in sub-Saharan Africa, they would need to be affordable to all students, portable in a diversified offering of university education, and sufficient to meet uh, the full cost of university education, including acceptable personal expenses such as room and board, clothing and etc. None of these conditions are met by the current loan schemes that exist in sub-Saharan Africa. So it is doubtful that they can promote equitable access uh, while, at the same time, the nature of ra rapid expansion, as I've mentioned, of higher education in the region has diluted human capital acquisition associated with university education. Research is needed into the mechanisms for financing higher education in sub-Saharan Africa that can deliver expanded access, quality, and equity. So, given this terrain of my research, which is what I've covered in basic education in Tibet and in higher education, what do I conclude? The three examples I have set out here, basic education, Tibet, and higher education, demonstrate that the components of human capital have not been experienced in sub-Saharan Africa. Only a small percentage of the cohort, around 7%, have access to tertiary education, even though access has, has expanded rapidly. At basic education level, there still exists a wide range of schools and schooling conditions, such as uh, schools in the slums that, in the case of Kenya, are unrecognized, unregulated, and illegal in the eyes of a government that has failed to provide full equitable access to basic education. In many instances, there are also millions who have not been able to access any form of schooling at all. It cannot be said, under these circumstances, that the threshold at which the human capital theory begins to be realized has been met. Education, stands, education therefore, cannot really realize the economic uh, development that is associated with it in sub-Saharan Africa. The physical evidence of the state's investment in schools and education will go a long way toward changing the perception of teachers and the, and the teaching profession, both by the community and by the teachers themselves. As many studies have indicated, teacher quality is a key factor affecting learning outcomes. And so every effort should be made to ensure that teaching attracts and retains highly qualified individuals. This will not be easy to implement and realize, yet upon it rests the concept of the theory of human capital and its realization. 
Economic indicators related to market growth or unemployment tend to mask trends and problems related to education. It is important to note that Goal 4.6 of the SDGs calls on countries to ensure that all youth and a substantial proportion of others, both men and women, achieve literacy and numeracy by 2030. Promoting but also monitoring of Goal 4.6 will present multiple challenges to stakeholders. To address SDG 4.6, there is greater need for A, further conceptualization of the target skills of literacy and numeracy, as well as B, improving indicators that can provide comparative data. Formal civet options will not be able to adequately serve the youth until the quality and relevance of primary education equip them to continue successfully into secondary education. Therefore, given this, uh, in sum, uh, given the rapidly changing demographics and economies across Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, significantly more attention will need to be paid to the role of learning for human capital theory to become viable. Much will depend on implementation of reforms, which requires that economists and educators work together so that evidence from econometrics and pedagogies can be pulled together and the contribution of education to economic growth can be realized. It, in this endeavor, education research uh, should be given same weight in shaping policies as is currently enjoyed by economists and their methodologies, including uh, what are known as randomized control trials. So uh, what uh, my research has done in this area uh, just to show you some of the work that I've done, there are quite many, but I picked a few of them that I feel are relevant. One of them was to look at uh, the determinants of human capital formation and economic growth. This is work that I did many years ago. And one of the things that I did find there is actually uh, a relationship between education and economic development. But it does not happen if governments don't also invest in creative jobs. So education does not cause economic growth. And the evidence I have there that it also requires investment in fiscal capital, which requires attracting foreign direct investment or creating the market by the government. Markets don't drop from heaven. Uh, markets are markets via externalities. Government has to provide the conditions and create those markets. And I found that actually uh, that was necessary for education to contribute economic uh, growth. And this is based on regression analysis uh, that I did in that paper involving 38 countries or 50 countries, 38 countries over about a five-year regression. I've also looked at policies with my colleague Ken. We've reviewed uh, policies on education over a long period of time, and what we found there uh, relates to the story that I've given you about lack of proper implementation of basic education and secondary education. And this itself has affected the way education and development uh, relate to the country. I've looked at why are there proportionately more uh, poor pupils enrolled in non-state schools in urban Kenya in spite of FP policy, which is something replicated in several countries. And this is itself a conundrum of the universal uh, primary education policies in the region. I've also asked the question whether to vocationalize or not to vocationalize, and I've analyzed uh, technical and vocational education, going back to the original work of Philip Foster about uh, vocational school policy. And there too, I've provided the evidence and some of the discussion in relation to the problem of education and development in Sub-Saharan Africa. And most recently, we also looked at uh, the role of classroom resources and the uh, national educational con uh, context, comparing uh, games in Botswana, Kenya, and South Africa. Very interesting analysis here involving several schools. What we found in this analysis is that teachers in South Africa have got very good pedagogic skills. They can manage the classroom, they can teach very well in the classroom, but terribly, terribly poor content uh, knowledge. They have very poor content knowledge. Kenyan teachers, in the contrast, 
are very good in content knowledge. They know the subject, but very poor teachers. Their pedagogic knowledge is horrible. So these were interesting analysis, and it doesn't surprise us that South Africa performs very poorly in some of these subject data, whereas it spends a lot uh, in, uh, in education. It means that it needs to think about the subject scale of its teachers. So that is uh, another finding that we found to be relevant. Most recently, we have engaged discussion on the moral argument about the way higher education is financed in South Southern Africa, and I've come to the conclusion that it's very complex, as I've articulated uh, when I was giving uh, my talk in relation to this. But I've contributed to the debate about where is higher education in relation to sustainable development. Definitely, uh, all this raises a number of questions. One of them is if priority needs to be given to supporting uh, transition from primary to post-primary learning for the masses, which I think is where uh, the problem is. What kinds of opportunities can build relevant life and labor skills and support civic participation to the majority marginalized at the bottom of learning in Southern Africa? The other question is what type of measurement tools can or should be used or not used in order to uh, determine effective learning and effective policies for supporting access and learning for majority? How are these questions addressed or not addressed by the human capital theory, which, as I told you, uh, sits very well with government. If you are talking to a government minister, whenever they articulate education policy, they always talk about how skills will create economic growth. They always refer to education as investment. But then they don't, they don't ask and answer these questions in order to relate it to the understanding of human capital theory. So I also say this raises a number of issues. At post-primary level, why do these marginalized young people uh, and others know, and how, how can we measure that? What are the kind of skills, uh, what kind of skills do they have? How can we measure those skills? If they haven't been able to make the transition uh, to higher levels of education, they must know something. And what are the skills that they know? How can that be measured? How can that be utilized? And these are questions that are important to be asked in terms of designing policy. And therefore, again, as I concluded, human capital theory has not uh, been sufficiently experienced in South Southern Africa for us to be able to robustly analyze its contribution to economic development in the region. Therefore, it remains tacit to government and to parents. As I've said, basic education is weak, implementation is weak, inequalities in access uh, are generated. This generates negative feedback effects from education provision, undermining the basis uh, for human capital theory. With that, I end my lecture. Thank you for listening. Um, so many parallels as well as differences um, between the case of sub-Saharan Africa and uh, the UK and, and Europe more broadly. And I think for me, my main takeaway is it's not just education, education, education. It's quality, quality, quality. But I've learned a lot. Um, I'm now really pleased to invite Professor Francis Green to make his response. Francis is Professor of Work and Education Economics at the IOE. He's also Deputy Director of the prestigious ESRC Research Centre, the Centre for Learning and Life Chances in Knowledge Economies and Societies, otherwise known as LAKES. He's recently written on skills and graduate labour markets and private schooling <coughs> in the UK context. And Francis's contributions on labour economics, 
education, economics, and political economy have been hugely impactful within and beyond academia, nationally and internationally, and we're very pleased that he's able to respond to the lecture this evening. Francis. much for the invitation to make this uh, a brief response to uh, Professor Okechi's wonderful lecture. Uh, Professor Okechi's lecture has addressed what I think is one of the most important themes of our times, the role of education in modern societies. Uh, education is really at the heart of economic and social development uh, across the world, but perhaps nowhere uh, is the role of general education more acute than in some of the poorer countries in sub-Saharan Africa? Moses has touched on several key issues in his lecture. The implications of the youth bulge, a wonderful term, I think you'll agree. Uh, I was thought it was a middle-aged bulge, but still. <laughs> the demographic dividend, perhaps, is a, a more optimistic term for it. The special role of technical and vocational education and training. I thought it was very interesting what he talked about. The importance of basic education and the thorny issues surrounding higher education finance. In tackling all these topics, uh, Moses has framed his analysis within a search for the truth and validity of human capital theory. That quintessentially economic way of thinking about these things. Human capital theory has varied interpretations by uh, different authors, uh, even within economics. And Moses' approach characterizes human capital theory as the idea that, uh, that the dominant lens through which we should observe education is that of investment theory. We should think of it as investment theory. It focuses on the economic incentives uh, uh, um, uh, to participate in education and the effects of education on subsequent skills, on subsequent productivity in the workplace, and hence on wages. At the expense of emphasizing uh, more general effects of education, such as individual development, or state formation, and the normative issues surrounding educational rights and social justice. Now, a fundamental aspect of that theory is the view that there will be a close relationship between education, training, and economic growth. And Moses' critique, at least my reading of it, is essentially that the theory is often nullified in practice. This link, uh, there are too many intervening factors loosening that education growth nexus. These include uh, the mismatches between the supply of and demand for highly educated labor, uh, which uh, Moses talked about. Interestingly, as he informs us, the demand for highly educated labor uh, was there at the start of the post-colonial period, but tailed away pretty rapidly in many countries after the government posts were filled up. Other issues that break the link uh, between education and growth are endemic corruption, uh, wars, and the inequality of provision, including this lack of universality in a primary education, which, which Moses spent some time on. For me, however, and it's very interesting that, that Professor Francis picked on the same thing, the most intriguing theme I found in Moses' lecture is the problem of quality. 
coming, cover, covering lots of areas. How poor quality diminishes the connection between education investments and learning outcomes, and hence with economic development. He touches on quality at several points. Uh, for example, the quality of school teachers, the quality of vocational training programs. But my particular interest is in the role of private schooling, and that's what, that's what Becky uh, Francis has just mentioned. And here I find a very interesting contrast between the situation here in Britain and the situation in, in Kenya. In Britain we find private schooling providing high quality, highly resourced uh, education for a small minority of the very rich, probably mostly, most of you know that, and it's concentrated to some considerable degree in the richer residential parts of London, which is in itself the richest part of this country. Previous researchers had assumed something similar was the case in, in African countries. Uh, but Moses' research has found that the picture was more complex, and this is what I find is interesting. In Kenyan cities, as he explained in his lecture, we find something which is at first seemingly paradoxical. Many private schools located inside the slum districts, as well as outside the slum areas. Indeed, there are more inside than outside. Uh, he found that some 40% of the families living in the slum districts, which which he looked at, were in private schools, and this compared with just 18% of the families in the richer areas. Certainly paradoxical if you're used to the scene in, in a richer country like Britain. So outside the slums, slum areas, the private schools were clearly providing a somewhat better resource and higher quality education than uh, 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 for, for those who, who could afford it. And it's clear that those private schools are there to serve the demands of the more affluent urban population. In the slums, however, it turns out much of the private schooling has emerged simply to provide some schooling. It's a response to the lack of anything from the state sector, uh, reflecting, uh, uh, and it's not, it's not a perceived lack of quality. His research demonstrates that the free primary education policy has significantly failed in these slum areas. It's failed to meet the needs of access of the poorest families in urban Kenya. So that kind of quality, quantity nexus I found very interesting. And indeed, of course, the slum area private schools are pretty low quality, let's face it, in those areas, as Moses' research shows. Well, there's much to mull over here, uh, and many, many practical issues to resolve in deciding what aspects of schooling and what types of training program are high quality and most effective. A focus on quality, I think, is extremely relevant, but of course this brings many questions and not enough answers yet about how this can be measured and evaluated. Nevertheless, I share with Moses an optimistic perspective on the power of scientific study and evidence to help us, and even more so the policy makers, to understand better what works uh, and what can be done to improve education's contribution to the development of some of the poorer nations on this earth. And Moses has set himself and the rest of us an important agenda. Thanks for listening. Thank you, professors. And thank you, audience, 
I think that's been a tremendously stimulating and impressive uh, first lecture in our series. Uh, congratulations again to Professor Aketch for the inaugural lecture. Thank you to all of you for attending. And it's my pleasure now to invite you to join us in a wine reception uh, outside so that we can continue to debate uh, the issues raised in today's lecture. Thank you to everybody again. Thank you.